This week on Writers Inc. My routine, once I was able to be a full-time writer, I think I was probably, you know, six or seven books into my career before I could quit my day jobs. But once I became a full-time writer and could devote, you know, thank God my, you know, my whole day to it. Yeah, that, that's been my routine. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. JD, you're in Spain, right? Uh, yeah, I'm doing some awesome book signings. And- <laughs> no, JD's not here. We don't need that, dude. JD is gone. I think he is in Spain, though, right? I think it's a book tour. Yeah, I think he's on the uh, on the book tour for, for the Black Widow. That's He's way more important than us. Oh, totally. <laughs> in fairness, he he did say that if we could have started earlier, he would have joined us today. But I I was doing an, an interview, so we we couldn't. So, gotta get that out there. He 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 was gonna come on. He was gonna be taking his rightful place behind the microphone, but because of me, he's not. Yeah, you didn't name drop your interview like you did like in four different emails to us. So, but I know you don't want to spoil it to all the people here. <laughs> well, you know what? I, it's in the can now, so I can say uh, that I got done talking with Blake Crouch, my favorite author. Yeah. So I was, I was. Uh, that that that'll be a good one. I'm looking forward to to hearing that interview. So. Yeah, it was. Uh, I had to negotiate a little bit with the publisher because he is in high demand, and so I didn't get. Yeah you know, the amount of time that I normally get, but I, I think I made the most of it. Uh, it, it turned out really well. I, I, um, I won't spoil. I asked him a question that stumped him and, uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be good. I don't think any, I caught something in, in his book that I, he didn't even realize was there. So that'll be fun. Oh, to no, you have to talk to me about that off air because yeah. I've already read an advanced copy too. So yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll have to talk about that off air because <laughs> I'm curious now. So but, uh, yep. but yeah, so no JD this week, but, uh, that's okay. We're going to, we're going to make it happen. And yeah, props to him. Cause he was going to try to get on anyway before he flew out, which is just a, a tribute to his, uh, his work ethic. So I, I want his commitment. So, but, uh, yeah, so we, we probably shouldn't make fun of him too hard this week. Not too much. <laughs> so what's going on, man? What you got going on this week? Ah, uh, a lot of stuff, man. A lot of stuff. I got, um, got a few people coming to town to do like a little private workshop with me. Um, that's, that's going to be fun. Uh, start a little project with my daughter, which is great. So I've, uh, uh you know, it, at some point, um, well really, no, I guess now I've been, I'm working with both my kids in, in different areas. So, uh, that's, that's been awesome. It's, it's like a, it's a weird parenting thing, you know? Um, You'll, you'll get there eventually. Like, you know, you, you, the, at a certain point, they become like people, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you know, like they have their own, their own thoughts and perspectives. And, uh, it's, it's, it's odd. I have to remind myself of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, I can see that. Like even with Haley now, like obviously it's not the same level of what you're going through with your kids, but it's just crazy how fast they change and start to develop their own thoughts and stuff. And it's just, uh, you know, especially at this age where she's almost eight, you know, I feel like 
I have to remember she like I I tend to not give her enough credit sometimes for things and like you know they're smarter than you think they are a lot of the time and you got and you have to remember that you have to remember that as much as you can so they're more resilient but, too that's the other thing we, we they're like to way think, more resilient you're a hundred percent right right like they like, like think they're fragile but they're 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 pretty tough no and I'm you know with some things going on on my over here like I'm definitely seeing that more than than like I'm seeing how resilient she is you know and it's been a you're you're a hundred percent right about that. Like it's really awesome. Yeah, nice. So. What are you working on, man? Well, I am. Uh, you know, I, things are kind of crazy over here too. So I'm as as you know, I'm gearing up to move next week, which is so I got a lot of that stuff going on. It's been kind of crazy, and then um, I I've started working on uh, book seven of Dead South. I have most of it outlined. I've I started drafting just because I kind of got stumped on the outline. Um, a little bit and I just got to this point where I'm like man I just need to like start drafting this first act and like let my brain get into the story a little bit and and because I, I, I'm pretty I'm, the first act I have nailed down like I know everything that's going to happen I know where the book is ending because I think this is going to be I'd plan to do nine books in this series but I think it's going to be eight now I, I, I don't think I'm going to be I think I'm going to be able to wrap it up in eight and as much as I would you know from a marketing standpoint as much as i'd love to have a ninth book and to have a longer series i don't think that's going to create the best reader experience so i think that um and i kind of saw this coming because as you know people have have heard me say in the past on different podcasts i i, I tend to write series and and trilogies and i kind of got off that this time and the first main arc took four books so that kind of threw me off a little bit from the nine book thing. So like, uh, so eight books is probably going to make a lot more sense than nine at this point. So, I mean, how, how realistically, how big of a difference is there between eight and a nine book series? I mean, I mean, you know, it's from, from a financial standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's a, a book, other, right. But like, that's as a whole far other as like, book for somebody to come into. It's, you yeah. know, it's also, if you look at it from, you know, that's a longer book for KU, I'm looking at the audiobooks as well. So like I'm looking I'm looking long term with my audiobook strategy for the box set. And so that's one more book in the audiobook box set makes it a little bit longer. Now on the flip side, that's one more I have to produce. So it will be a little bit cheaper to get all the audiobooks done. Um, but uh but yeah, this is one of those situations where I just need to really think about the reader experience first. And, um, you know, as we've said, like story is king, like story comes before everything. And um, and I may get to the end of this book and be like, oh, I actually think I do need two books to wrap it up. But I'm pretty confident it's going to be just one more after this. So um, so that's going on. Um, I was also going to mention while I'm here that uh, like I, I've been kind of quiet i guess and not been super out there about the fact that i'm doing editing and all that as well um and i did just kind of want to let anyone know who is looking for any editing services i actually have like a gap in my schedule right now so if anyone is looking uh, for an, a new editor or work with somebody the first time um reach out to me i do i have different services i do so like if you're just looking for line editing i do that if you're looking for more of a developmental type thing i do the three-story method diagnostic um that you invented pretty much 
Um, and then also, uh, like if you're looking for more like book coaching, I do that as well. So, um, people can, you know, hit my website down the show. It's just zachbohannon.com or you can hit me up at zbbwrites at gmail.com and we can, uh, discuss your project. Nice. So, cool. I'm glad you're putting it out there. Yeah. Nice. Uh, a couple things of business, business slash progress. So, uh, Quick reminder that we have uh, we have about two weeks left on the sale for uh, the Author Life Summit tickets. So, uh, as we're as we're recording or as this is publishing on May sixteenth, uh, you have about two weeks. June first uh, is the deadline for purchasing tickets. So, if you are interested, make sure you get in there and grab that ticket now. They will not be available um, after June first. We have some great speakers lined up. It's a small. A ga- intimate gathering in Colorado Springs. Would love to see you there. So uh, just a reminder on that. Also, really, uh, really proud to announce that we have a new sponsor. And in, um, in addition to Kobo Writing Life, we love Kobo Writing Life, so they're not going anywhere. But uh, Dave Chesson, uh, who who runs many companies, as Zach found out on Creator Dead, uh, is the guy behind Atticus. And uh, Atticus is the formatting tool, uh, eventually becoming a, a writing and full-on collaboration tool as well. Uh, he he debuted Atticus not too long ago, and because um, I'm not a Mac guy, I, I, I can't access Vellum easily, um, and so Atticus is a great option for me. And uh, just proud to announce that, that they're going to be a sponsor. And what's really cool is that, um, like Kobo Writing Life, the sponsors we're getting are the things we use. We're not uh, yeah. we're not chilling stuff we don't we don't use personally. So um, in that regard, if you want to see what a, a book formatted uh, by Atticus looks like. You can pick up the new three-story method book called Writing Scenes. It's a new craft book I just put out. It's the first one in uh, almost two years since the flagship book came out. Um, really proud of it. I, it's a uh, it's at a more granular level. So three-story method foundations of fiction is sort of the story arc, and writing scenes is about exactly that writing the scene and the and the components of it. Uh, and I wrote that after the Supercharger Scene Challenge. So. I literally took transcripts from that challenge, and those became first drafts. So it's it's been vetted. A lot of people have been through the process. It works really well. And like I said, it's been formatted by Atticus. So uh, two birds, one stone there. Link in the show notes if you want to check it out. Yeah, big big thanks to Dave and them over at Atticus for sponsoring the show. We really appreciate it. And um, if anyone is interested, just to kind of plug something you mentioned, uh, I, I recently had a great conversation with Dave on Creator Dad, and we really went – did a deep dive on Atticus and what it is and more importantly, what it's going to be. So we did a pretty big, uh, cause they got big plans over there for Atticus, um, you know, where it's going to become much more than just a formatting software. So uh, if, if you're interested, we I asked them a lot of questions about it and we did a pretty big deep dive. So you can check that out at, on the creator dad podcast. It's like one of the last five or so episodes that I did. So. Yes. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Yep. Thanks to the team at Atticus. We appreciate it. We, we certainly do. We also want to uh, put the spotlight on Kobo Writing Life, our uh, wonderful sponsor for the past several years now. Uh, if you are publishing a book wide, then Kobo Writing Life is an absolute must. You get over there and you upload your EPUB uh, formatted by Atticus, uh, and you get to set your price. You keep all your rights. Um, and there's no exclusivity agreements, which is really important if you're going wide. So link in the show notes, or you can get there directly by going to KoboWritingLife.com. 
This would so be JD. Who we got today? <laughs> you beat me we'll to just it. have a big blank spot here. Just, just silence. Just silence. <laughs> and then we'll go. Okay, here's our guest. Well, you know, it's it's too bad he's not here for this one to crow about a little bit because uh, JD got us Don Winslow. Uh, Don is an institution. I mean, he is a he's a legacy author. He, Stephen King like reads and blurbs every book that Don puts out. Um, he's a tried and true veteran and uh, really, really excited for the, for the conversation. He's got a, a brand new book out called City on Fire. And, uh, and it's, it's an interesting premise, which I think you're, you're going to hear about in the interview. So with that being said, um, let's take a listen to Don Winslow. Are you really a cupcake? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh look i'm i'm five six and a and 130 pounds you know so what can i tell you yeah i, I had to reference the guardian uh article that was great i read that line i literally laughed out loud so uh re really appreciate that <laughs> i've had more friends who text me and email me about that over the past few days than i'll bet. I tell you about yeah <laughs> Well, we're not here to talk about your your stature. Uh, <laughs> City on Fire is uh, amazing. New, new book coming out uh, in a really fascinating concept. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, you know, uh, boy, I want to say it's 27 years ago now. Um, I was reading the Iliad, you know, as one does, and uh, the parallels between it and certain real life crime events that I grew up around were striking, you know? Uh, and then the more that I read in the classics, you know, the Aeneid, the Odyssey, Greek tragic dramas, more and more of these parallels were striking me. You know, you, you look at some of the plots, you go, my God, that's a noir novel, or that's straight out of real life gang world. You know, and so I had this idea that maybe I could write actually a trilogy. This is the first volume of, of three um, that could be standalone contemporary crime novels. You could you can read them and I hope enjoy them without any reference to the classics whatsoever. But at the same time, echoed those characters and stories and themes from those great works. So that's what I tried to do. Love it. It's fantastic. I already can't wait for the, for the next two. Uh, as an author, I'm dying to know, like, did you, did you sit down and start just writing it or did you kind of map out the beats from the Iliad and try and match them up? Well, I started writing this thing, like I said, 27 years ago. I wrote the first chapter uh, with a guy on the beach and he sees a woman come out of the water and stuff happens. Uh, but, uh, and then I kept putting it down, you know, so it, I was busy doing other things and I didn't really, you know, I, I doubted my abilities, frankly, to do it. Uh, but yeah, but then when I, I got back into it, yes, I was deliberately very much mapping out uh, the story because the, the protagonist, Danny Ryan, matches the life story of Aeneas. Aeneas being a minor player in the Iliad and of course the, the major character in the Aeneid. Uh, and so I knew I was going to take this character through about 20 years and through various wanderings and adventures uh, and, you know, his evolution, both both external and internal. So, yeah, I, I was very much looking at, at every point for parallels, you know, like what would the Trojan horse be in a modern setting? 
that makes no sense. You know, um, when when Aeneas goes to found Rome, the, the quarrel is over the princess Lavinia. That makes no sense. And so I had to find the, the modern equivalents that did make sense and that worked and, and that were still fairly faithful to the originals. Wow. Uh, at what point in those 27 years did you realize, okay, I, I have a project here. This is this, I can materialize this thing. I guess it was during COVID. Wow. You know, um, I had finished the drug trilogy. I'd finished this a New York cop book called The Force and a, a book of novellas called Broken. And all of a sudden we're all, I mean, Broken came out and the next day the country was shut down. Boom, you know. Uh, and so I just sat down and thought, yeah, okay. Uh, let me see what I can do with this thing. Let me see if it takes me anywhere or if it's just a dumb idea. <laughs> you know, <laughs> One of those ideas that's great for one chapter and then, then isn't. Uh, but it, I think it had legs, you know, and, and the more that I read in the classics and the more I recalled stories from real life and the, the sort of people that I'd grown up around, you know, in those places, the, the better it became. Nice. Well, let's pretend uh, the listener hasn't read the book yet and they walk into a bar and there is Danny Ryan sitting there yeah. having a drink. What, what do they see? What's he saying? What's he doing? Hey, you're gonna, they're going to like Danny. You know, uh, I mean, Danny at least begins the story as a really good guy. He was a, a longshoreman. Uh, he's a fisherman. He's your sort of average Irish Catholic New England guy that you would sit down and have a beer with. You'd probably talk about the Red Sox. You might talk about hockey. Uh, if, if you're from, you know, that part of the world that I am, you might talk about the fishing. You know, how's the cod? How's the lobster? Uh, and so you, you'd have a good time with Danny. He's just kind of a regular guy. I know you had an Irish Catholic upbringing in that part of the country. Uh, how, how much of uh, how much of you is in Danny? Well, you know, I, some famous cardinal or somebody bishop or somebody said, you know, give me a child until he's six and he's mine forever. Uh, I think that there's maybe more truth in that than I would like to <laughs> admit. Uh, yeah, I think I have a lot in common with Danny. That's where the cupcake. Uh, remark became because somebody asked me, are you Danny Ryan? You know, are you a leg breaker? I'm like, no, you know, uh, no. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think there's quite a bit of, of him in me. I think we have that same sense of Irish Catholic guilt. You know, I I'll be guilty about things you do. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and that kind of same um, sense of always kind of checking in on the, the morality of things. You know, I, I chose Danny as a character because Aeneas and Danny are are a little outside of things. You know, they're they're not born into the royal family; they marry into it, and as such, they always have sort of one foot in and one foot out, and, and that gives that slightly outsider's perspective, that just off center slant that I think can be quite useful for a writer. This is a. Bit of a related question. I, I was not raised in Cleveland, but I live here now. And, a, and apparently in the 70s, there was a massive uh, mob war between the, the Irish and the, and the Italians. Danny Green and, and Kill the Danny Irish. Green, and, yeah. Right, right. Exactly. Um, yeah. Were, were those sort of conflicts uh, somewhat similar in different parts of the country sort of happening at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, you know, there was an era. Listen, I, I think that things in decline are more interesting to write about. 
Do you know what I mean? Things that in their origins or in their decline to me tend to be more interesting to write about than in the middle of things when things are great. So you had an era, you know, in, in the American mobs where Rico had started, right? And, and everyone was turning rat. Uh, the, the mob had broken its often broken, you know, uh, ban on narcotics trafficking. And so guys are looking at sentences of 30 to life and they have great incentive, you know, to become witnesses. Uh, and, and there was less turf for people. And so you had these conflicts arise. You know, and, and I think that that was sort of a nationwide phenomenon. Now there've always been gang wars. You could, you could write that story in Latin, right? But, uh, but yeah, there was a definite era and, and this book's very much of that. It's almost unfathomable, I think, to, to, to maybe younger folks who weren't around to think that there were daily car bombs exploding on the streets in, in American cities. It just it's, it seems almost unreal. It became like baseball. You you would you pick up in the morning newspaper if anyone remembers what that was. Uh, you go to the Smithsonian, you'll you'll see. You'll <laughs> and uh, and there'd be pictures of dead gangsters, you know. And then you'd go and see how the Red Sox did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you said that COVID was the, the the time period or the moment where you felt like this this project had legs. Uh, were you still following your your writing routine? I think you. 5.30 to 10 a.m., followed by a hike. Is that still your process? Yep. yep. Not today, because I'm talking with you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no my That's Irish right. Catholic guild is kicking in. I'm, yeah, I feel bad should, for you that. Should. You should. You should feel bad. It's a gorgeous day here. Uh, yeah. Now, that, that's been my routine pretty much forever. You know, well, my routine, once I was able to be a full-time writer, I think I was probably, you know, six or seven books into my career before I could quit my day jobs. But once I became a full-time writer and could devote, you know, and thank God my, you know, my whole day to it. Yeah, that, that's been my routine. So, you know, it, it sounds crass to say, and I don't mean it this way, but in terms of my work, COVID didn't change much. You know, social isolation, as you know, is is a writer's work strategy. Yes, the dream. <laughs> days alone, you know, making stuff up. We spend most of our time with people who don't actually exist. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, and so COVID didn't change much in that regard. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any particular revision process or drafting process that you've honed in over the years? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I write my first drafts very fast. Um, and uh, as the drafts go along, and they're probably, because I'm rewriting constantly, right? There'll probably be, you know, 10 to 14 of those. Um, the, the deeper I go into those drafts, the more I'm thinking about the reader and sort of the slower I get, you know? So, yeah, so the, the first drafts are just right like you're afraid of being caught, you know? which these days might be a possibility. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, but as it goes on later, in early drafts, I'm, I'm just pretty much aware of me. It's sort of a selfish process. You know, it's me, it's what I want, it's what I want, it's what I want. Uh, later on, uh, it's not about me anymore. It's about what the reader needs, what the reader needs, what the reader needs. How do you figure that out? Uh, trial and error. Uh, you know, I, I, have, I have a few weird little things that I do. They sound a little crazy, but they work for me. Um, for instance, I'll, 
in late, late drafts, I'll stand away from the computer screen so that I can only see the shape of the pages, but not the individual words. Wow. To see if um, it looks like what it should be. You know, uh, let me explain that. I mean, if it's an action sequence and I don't want the reader to get a break, then it should look like a big black block, right? No break. I, I want to grab you by the shirt and I want to hold on to you. If though, sometimes I want to focus the reader's attention on one or two or three words that I think stand for a lot of other things, then those two or three words need white space around them. They need negative space. We often forget that reading is not only an intellectual act, it's a physical act. It's a sensual act. Other things I'll do is I'll, I'll read particularly dialogue out loud to myself. I won't necessarily hear the right notes, but I will almost always hear the wrong ones. The clangers, you know, like, ooh, yeah, yeah, didn't quite get that one right. And then I'm just also looking at pacing. You know, does the reader need a little breather here? Does the reader, is, is there room maybe here for a little humor? Or sometimes maybe I've put humor in where it doesn't belong. You know, the juice isn't worth the squeeze, right? Right. You know, it's, yeah, it's funny, but it shouldn't be there. It detracts from what's around it. And so during that phase, that's all I'm trying to do is, is think, what does the reader see and what is the reader hearing in his or her ear? Wow, that standing back from the manuscript and at a disc, I've never heard that before. That is brilliant. I love that idea. Well, I, I listen, I think I'm the only person in the history of my university to have failed photography twice. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, visual arts are not my thing, but I, I did kind of learn this from art historians and, and you know, uh, uh, art teachers, you know, about standing back from a painting um, and, you know, and getting sort of broader shapes and then then looking at it more closely, you know. Um, I also learned it from my dad watching hockey games when he was teaching me how to watch hockey. Uh, we'd sit in three different places during the game. Wow. One very close, one in the middle and one way up top. And they are three different games, you know, way up top. You're seeing patterns in the middle. You're seeing the whole thing. And then close, you're seeing the sweat and, you know, and so, um, yeah, I've, I've kind of learned that technique. Yeah. Yeah, up in the cheap seats, it's a ballet, and at the glass, it's a boxing match. That's it. That's it. Yeah. You know, and uh, and so that was always really useful. And so I, I've tried to apply that to writing, and sometimes I do that actively. You know, it's like, man, does the reader need a close up here, right? Do I want to get him right where the sweat and the blood is? And other times, you need to pull back and and give the reader a broader scope of a person's life or a certain kind of culture or, you know, a place to say, okay, now I'm going to get way back. Well, I'm doing this where I'm just on audio, but, you know, <laughs> leaning way back in my chair to say, well, now we'll look at Rhode Island in those years. You know, we'll look at immigration. I think I do this at one point talking about Irish and Italian immigrants and what they went through, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. You mentioned hitting the right notes. Uh, but, but I also read that you you really never read poetry until somewhat recently. Are those two things connected? I, I think they are. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where you got that. But that's true. Yeah, I've always hated poetry. To tell you. 
perfectly honest with you. Hated in school, you know. And of course, the, these great works that I'm working off, the Iliad and the Odyssey, you need are, of course, poems. But last summer, and I don't know if it had to do with COVID or what, what it was, I started reading English romantic poetry. Wordsworth and Keats and, you know, Coleridge and those guys and, and loving it. I, I would start my morning every morning. I'd read, you know, a little bit of those people and read, you know, all the way through them because, you know, pedantic that way. But, uh, you know, I, I can't just read a freaking poem, right? I've, <laughs> I've got to read every poem they've read and then two biographies of each of them. Right, right. right. So that I understand the background of the poem. You know, it's kind of sick. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that, I think poetic techniques have, have always informed my writing because I, I do want it to sound good and I want it to sound like what it should be. You know, again, go, going back to say action scenes or violent scenes, I want those harsh, plosive consonants a lot of them, and I want short, punchy words, if they're available, if they're the right choice. But if it's a softer scene or a love scene or something, I, I want those longer vowels. I want those sibilant consonants. You know, I, I want it to sound right. Yeah, now you're making me feel guilty because I love listening to songs and song lyrics, but not poetry, which is the same thing. <laughs> Well, I'm a little older than you. You might you might get to it, but it is the same thing. They they are poems, and they're better because of music, you know. Right. But I mean, in terms of music, I mean, the biggest influence on me by far has been jazz, mm. you know. Um, and I don't think I really understood completely how to write crime novels to the extent that I do, by the way, uh, until I understood jazz a little better. Oh, how is that? How did that work? There has long been a saying in crime fiction, I don't know who originated it, you, you might, um, that says that a surprising should be simultaneously surprising and inevitable. Inevitable, yes. Robert McKee, maybe, maybe. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe. And I always thought, I don't know how that, those are, con those are contrasting, conflicting values. I don't know, I don't know how that works. I've always listened to jazz since I was maybe 15 or 16, it's a major part of my life. So one day I'm listening to, to the late, great Sonny Stitt play a song called Everything Happens to Me. And as the song was winding down, I had this moment, this eureka moment, because I realized that he was headed for a certain chord and that chord was inevitable. And if it didn't end on that chord, it was going to be unsatisfying, right? But the notes he used to get to that chord were surprising. Ah, ah. Thank you, Mr. Stitt. I get it now. Mm. I have to end the story on a certain chord, which is usually, of course, not set up at the end, but at the beginning, right, as we know. But the notes that I use to get to that chord can be surprising. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I, I've uh, I've felt that same thing, especially in, in f often feeling the music uh, more so than intellectualizing it. Right, you just sort of yeah, feel yeah. where it's supposed to go, um, yeah. but how you get there is is what makes it fun. Yeah, but you know, feeling it's so important too. I mean, I don't know if you write to music a lot. I do. You know, when I was writing this New York cop book, uh, I had like you know hip hop and and rap just cranked up in here. You know, I would just get totally juiced with it you know uh whereas other times you know like i have to 
you know, I would go back to, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash. And, in, you know, in, in this book at City on Fire, I was listening to a lot of jazz, but then also putting on some 80s music, not particularly my favorite, with the exception of, of the great Mr. Springsteen, who is, by the way, the greatest American poet since Walt Whitman. There you go. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd listen to a lot of that because, you know, the town this is set in, I, I've described as a, in my childhood as sort of a Springsteen kind of town you know, a beach town that had seen better days. Yeah. 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 I want to, I want to circle back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier. Uh, you had said that you were into your, you had published six or, or maybe seven books before you left your, your day job. Take us back to that time. What, what was that like? Oh man. Well, you know what, looking back on it, I look back on it as a lot of fun. Maybe it wasn't, but nostalgically, you know, I was doing a lot of interesting things to cobble together a living. I was working as a private investigator in California on, you know, various kinds of cases, homicide cases, insurance fraud, you know, all, all kinds of arson cases. I was directing uh, Shakespeare in Oxford, England, in the summers, and uh, for like international high school students in these summer programs. And then, you know, I was leading photographic safaris in Kenya. So me and my wife and, you know, infant and toddler child were, you know, running around the world. We lived in hotels for three years um, while I was just, you know, and writing books, you know, in, in my spare time. And, and, uh, and so at the time, I, I suppose it felt highly pressured, you know, uh, and yet I enjoyed all those jobs. I, I enjoyed the traveling, you know. I think it made us very close as a family. Yeah, so it was, you know, it was okay. Was that the plan? Uh, was the no, plan there was no plan. <laughs> <laughs> there was no plan. No, no, I, I've never had a plan. Um, <laughs> I was just doing the best I could. You know, we had to, had to pay rent and mortgages and put food on the table and, uh, and but yet I was able to do stuff that I enjoyed and, and things that were interesting with really interesting people, you know, chase leopards and elephants around with a camera and, you know, get your clients in position to take pictures. That, that was so much fun, you know, and, and directing Shakespeare, you know, uh, I, I do. I remember rehearsing in a room where John Gielgud had directed Richard Burton. And if you don't think you get inspiration that to do your best, you know? Uh, and so those, you know, my wife and I talk a lot about it now, you know, uh, that were a bit more settled, uh, you know, that those were fun years. You must have had her unwavering support. Unwavering support. Absolutely an adventurer. You know, I always tell a story about the first time she came to Africa and uh arrived there and that night we were in a camp tented camp and uh, five enraged female elephants stampeded the camp extremely dangerous situation wow and i thought well there goes that relationship you know <laughs> dating and <laughs> and she looked at me and she said that was so cool went, oh yeah marry me now <laughs> It could have gone one of two ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. There was no middle ground in that. In that, no. She listen. I mean, we've been married for uh, will be thirty seven years later this month, and um, you know, happily so, at least on my part. And uh, you know, she's been fantastic. Awesome. Well, I have one more question for you that will kind of yep. wrap us 
wrap us up here. I uh, hope it will be interesting for you. Uh, there's a lot of things changing in the world these days, especially in publishing and, and uh, the writing community. Um, what, what in the near future are you really excited about? Oh boy, there's so much. Look, I, I think that there's so much opportunity now for aspiring and young writers because there's so many platforms, you know? You can try the traditional publishing, or if that doesn't work, you can go in different directions. You know, um, everybody talks about the death of the book. I mean, the, the book's been killed more times than Tony Soprano, you know. <laughs> uh, but you go to caveman days, right? You know, Gronk and Bonk went out and killed an antelope or something. And what's the very next thing they did? They told the story and then they painted it on the cave wall. You know, people are always going to want stories. That's never going to change. I think this is part of being human. You know, so I'm excited to see, you know, what goes on and, and what opportunities it, it gives to people. All right, man. Uh, I knew you were going to dig this interview as soon as we started getting into talking about music while writing and hockey. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was totally into it. I was like, uh, it, wait, he, it, I loved what he. I never thought about, you know, I, I've I've been to probably a hundred. I've been to a ton of hockey games, and I was season ticket holders here for a long time for the Predators, and um, I'd never thought about what he said about because I've sat in tons of different places at Bridgestone Arena where the Predators play, and I've always enjoyed being closer to the top because I like. It was like you said, it's a ballet. I, I really enjoy watching. I feel like you really get to see the strategy of a hockey game up there because you get to see plays develop and, you know, see like you can see things for the players, see it as far as guys being. Uh, and it, it's totally different than like being down in the middle or down low. And I was like that. I was like, man, that was such that was such a cool analogy. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, that was worth the price of admission. I mean, I, you, you probably heard it in my voice. Uh, like not not even for the hockey analogy, but for the the writing practice. Like of all yeah. the books I've read and all the workshops I've attended, and I never heard an author say like I stand back from it and I look to see what the page looks like. And that it was just like, of course, like why wouldn't you do that? That made so much sense. Yeah, it totally did. And I know, you know, I I learned early on uh, from, from my editor, a shout out to Jennifer, like about space on a page, you know, cause she's real big in that, um, about making sure that, you know, your paragraphs are not always the same length and you have that space and that you're putting a lot of emphasis on places where it's needed. But I've never thought literally about like standing back and looking at the page that way. And the way he compared it to an artist and the way that artists will stand back and, get a different point of view. Yeah, it was, it was great because as, as Don said, you know, when you're, when, when you're in the action, you want that to be going, 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 and you want to keep that reader there. But there's, there's also times where you need to let it breathe. And you do that by creating white space on a page and really putting emphasis. And he talked about putting emphasis on certain lines and certain words and stuff. And that is like, that's important. That's how you do that. And yeah, I thought that was super fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, he said it was just not, not something that registered with me until he said it, and I was like, oh wow, yeah, that that's really clever. 
Yeah, and another another as you mentioned too, another author who writes to music, which I know that you can't do. <laughs> so not with lyrics, anyways. Not with you can't do it with lyrics. Yeah, that I was imp- I will say like I um, and I don't listen to a ton of hip hop or rap, um, but like I definitely can't listen to that while writing. Yeah. Um, that and I was so I was kind of impressed that he said that he's able to do that. Um, and that that was cool because I because I definitely will. I will listen to music dependent on what I'm writing and what the mood is. So whether that's a soundtrack or even music with lyrics, like I, I will listen to different things uh, depending on what I'm writing. So um, I, I totally can relate to him there. And uh, again, I'm very thankful about being able to uh, write to lyrics and music with lyrics. And uh, man, what'd you think about what he said about comparing ri- jazz to to writing thrillers like i thought that was awesome I, yeah i mean again like I, I i don't know if you can tell i i could have talked to him for hours like no, I, I just wanted to like yeah. you know because he you know you hear a lot of the same stuff um especially in my seat like um and, and that's not that's not um saying anything bad about anyone but like we come to a lot of things the same ways. And so people will give the same advice and you hear it a lot. And so much of what Don said, I hadn't heard before. And like tying the, like the jazz note resolution to the surprising, but inevitable conclusion again, click with me, right? Like you're listening to a song, you, you get to the end of the song, you know exactly how it has to end. Yeah. But how it gets there is what's interesting. And uh, yeah, I agree. Like that was a, a, another great insight that uh, especially in jazz, which tends to be more freeform than, you know, pop music or rock music. Yeah, I was going to say this would actually be a great time for JD to be here because he could be like, yeah, it's pantsing. And jazz, <laughs> they're pantsing, <laughs> which is true. Like, I mean, yeah. it, it, like well, jazz. Well, within a structure, it, right? Like they're within a key or they're they're yeah. locked into a certain tempo. So it is it isn't completely free form well some jazz is i guess but like most jazz there's some sort of constraints on it um and and that idea about being surprised but um you know surprising but inevitable i that that idea has has come up multiple times through through many of the interviews but i never heard it talked about it in the in the sense of jazz music so that, yeah that not cool. like that i mean cuz it was you know not to repeat everything you just said but it is very true like you know if you listen to jazz you you know you know like they know how it begins and they know how it's going to end but like that weaving to get there is like it's the journey to get to the end you know of of that and uh you know if you listen to some you know especially some of the great jazz like i'm a huge i love miles davis and john coltrane and stuff like it you'll definitely get that experience there for sure so um yeah i loved that I i thought i thought that was awesome yeah, the other thing I, I wanted to, to mention uh, after doing the interview, which uh, I'll, I'll admit I tried this and it was an epic failure, but it was over 10 years ago. This idea of taking like classical literature or taking an existing story and retelling it, that is such an attractive idea. And I'm no Don Winslow, but <laughs> damn, that dude can pull this off. I mean, what an ambitious project. But like, I, I don't know, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Like, it's it's not entirely original, but on the other hand, you, you've, it's proven it's a story that lasts, right? Like it's a story that's been around for thousands of years. Well, yeah. So the first thing, like really nothing's original. Yeah. We, we know that, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So like, I, and I, but I think I say that cause I think for a lot of writers, it's hard for them to really nail down on that, you know? 
I mean, it's it's like you look at Star Wars. You know, Star Wars is the story is not original. I mean, that's a tale that's been told a hundred times. It's a western. Now, yeah, it's just a yeah, exactly. And you know, it's what makes it unique is the characters and you know, people lightsaber, some of the world building stuff. Like, but it's the story itself is not is not original. You know, and so. Um, and George Lucas himself, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I mean, he will tell you like that was a retelling of a different film, I believe. I don't remember exactly. I think it was a Western, like you're saying. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like I, I've never tried that specifically, like taking a, like a fairy tale or something and like doing a retelling of it sort of thing or doing like, um, I believe the example he used was the Iliad, right? Yeah. He, he's going to use all of Homer's books to do, write yeah. this trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've never necessarily done anything like that. Um, but I definitely could see the appeal of it because all your, again, like everything is there, the story structure and everything is there and where the originality is going to, it comes in and what I think that, you know, writers who are skeptical of this need to understand, like, is going to be your voice and the way you tell that story. And obviously it's going to be different characters and such. Yeah, the like, setting, that's the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, um, it's just, it's just using the structures already there. It's just like when, I mean, this isn't a good comparison, but, you know, a lot of times when, um, uh, you know, uh, like in rap music, they do this a lot, you know, where they'll sample, you know, stuff from other songs. Like it's not a rip off. It's just using that and then creating your own thing out of that. So um, it, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, you totally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that idea is really cool. Again, I've never done it, but it's definitely not something that, um, that I would be opposed to doing Yeah, for sure. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was wonderful. Um, great. Uh, great shout out and thanks to Don for uh, he's in the midst of a, of a book tour right now and he, he's being pulled in a lot of different directions so really appreciate the time that he gave us and a uh, little little coda to the interview uh, we didn't talk about it um, but uh, Don sort of announced his retirement a few weeks after we recorded the interview he's he's finishing these three books and then he's going to focus mostly on politics which is oh, wow. uh, which is really interesting you know huh. um, so yeah I uh, it's it's out there on the interwebs now if you want to if you want to read up on it but i thought that was an interesting development uh that these are these are going to be his last three books so uh enjoy them while you can interesting right on well yeah we definitely appreciate don giving us his time and it was, it was a great interview so so uh jay who do we got up next week next week we have lars kepler uh you might remember lars from the napster days uh they were <laughs> oh, <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, that was good. I'm sorry. Oh, wait, that's the wrong Lars. Oh shit, I interviewed the guy from Metallica. Okay. Um no, oh, in all, in all seriousness, uh Lars Kepler is a pseudonym for a husband and wife writing team. Uh so this is going to be a a fascinating interview. They are uh they are two pros who have been doing this for a long time and uh we don't get to, I don't get to interview too many um co-writers at the same time on the podcast so i'm really looking forward to this one nice yeah that that'll be really interesting to hear so i'm, I'm definitely looking forward yeah. to that one as well all right well if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now we'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing thanks for listening to this episode of writers inc 
access the show notes, and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com. Bye, JD. We don't need you. (laughs) (laughs) There's our Easter egg for this episode. Yeah.